This is a recording made in the chapel of the open book under the covering title of Christian Fundamentals, subtitle Redemption. And this evening is number seven of that series. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together. And those of you who are listening to this recording, if you would care to join us, will you read with us Revelation chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 20. I can imagine anyone saying, well, of all the passages to read, to give us some sort of consolation and comfort, or give us a good time, you've picked on about the worst you could discover. But you see, that's not why the Bible was written. The Bible has faced grim facts, and it speaks of them very grimly. At the very beginning, we have a catastrophe in Genesis 1 verse 2. In the very beginning we have man plotted against and deceived. And we read in the scriptures that as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so death passed upon all men. You may not believe it, but that's the basis of the biblical teaching. Now, our subject for some many weeks has been the question, the, a wonderful question of redemption. And in most cases, uh, when we speak about redemption, our minds immediately go to the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life and the blessed hope that lies before those who are believers in Christ. But we should be very remiss and exceedingly wrong if we said, well, we don't want to emulate as if Richard II had said, let's talk about graves and worms and epitaphs. We don't want to talk about them, friends. But you see, there is an attitude like the ostrich that buries its head in the sand. Or like Nelson with his one blind eye. But it doesn't matter whether you bury your head in the sand or shut both eyes. You've got to remember at long last that there is one subject, one subject, on which everybody in the whole wide world is in perfect agreement. Now I mentioned that last week when I took the funeral service of our sister, Mrs. Burton. Gathered at that little service was a handful of God's people who, if we'd been let loose, we could have been arguing and disputing because there are many points upon which we disagree. But I said to them, I'm not taking the mean advantage of the opportunity I have to lecture you. I'm just telling you, and you're going to agree with me, that here, at this moment, there is one fact facing us. And the whole wide world would have to agree they couldn't help themselves. It wouldn't matter what your politics were, what your philosophy was, whether you belonged to this denomination or none at all. Whether you said, I don't believe in God or Christ, it wouldn't matter, you'd agree. And that is, in the language of Solomon, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, he said these words, Though a man live ten thousand years twice told, yet there's one event waiting for him. Well, you see, if I were out to give you a pleasant evening, I would have just passed that by. But I'm not. I'm not here to please anybody except one. And that's the Lord who sends us. And consequently, We've got to face this fact. And fact it is, 
that we belong to a mortal race, whether we're Mohammedans or Confucianists or Communists or blue-blooded Tories, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. One event. So if you say, I'm not interested in that, friends, I should doubt your sanity. You cannot possibly say, I'm not interested in that. You cannot possibly say, don't talk to me about the deliverance. But you say, surely you don't act like that in every other, any other sphere in life. Uh, in this particular locality, I might say to somebody here, oh, what's your particular job, friend? Well, we'll say, I'm in the insurance. I see. So you're earning your living, insuring something else, and you've got God's policy here, and you ignore that. And you call that to be hard-headed business. That, I say it's just folly, and so do you. There's a passage often misquoted in 1 Corinthians 15. Those who have no hope, no belief in Christ, no Redeemer. It's often quoted as though they said, let's eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Well, if you look at the passage, it doesn't say that. It says, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die, for the poor riches can't even be merry. They've got nothing to be merry about. Now, here's a solemn fact they're facing us. Shall we face it? I'm going to turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, and as that's not a very usual reference, you'll discover that it follows Psalms, Proverbs, comes before the Song of Solomon and the prophet Isaiah. And as I'm going to refer to two or three passages, it would be wise if you found it and looked at them for yourselves. We live up to our title in this meeting, this is the chapel of the opened book. There's any amount of evil doctrines floating around because we argue with one another with a book shut. And your argument's no more value than mine. When we open the book, we've got something that has stood the test of time and gives us the mind of God. Now I've quoted, haven't I? Or perhaps I've mangled the quotation, we must see it presently. The reference is one event. Now this particular word event is worth noticing. The Hebrew word kara, I'm spelling it for the sake of those of you who want to get these in black and white, Q-A-R-A-H. And the word mikra, because you see in the Hebrew, if you want to turn uh, an action into a thing, you put the letter M in front of it. That's usual. So mikra is whatever this is, and the word kara means just to happen. You remember the statement in the book of Ruth? A hat was to turn that way instead of that. And in this very book, he says, I returned and saw under the sun, I'm reading chapter 9-11, that the race is not to the swift. Do you know this is, this is in the book of, uh, this is in the word of God. The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong neither yet bread to the wise, nor yet riches to men of understanding, nor yet favour to men of skill, but time and chance happeneth to them all. And if we have our eyes in our head, we can see that that's the truth. It isn't always the best man who gets the best job. There is this element of something happening. Well, this word event is just that word. And it has an importance in our doctrinal appreciation of the purpose of God, because there is a system of doctrine which has gone to the extreme of saying that because God is almighty, 
Long before time began, he predestinated some of you to be saved and he predestinated the rest of you to be lost. Now he's put into this book a word that says time, chance. He says it was an event, not planned by God. Do you realise that before man was on the earth, the word if, I-F, had no meaning. The sun rises and the sun sets. Of course, don't put me right with regard to astronomy, but speaking in the language of men. The tides go in and out, but they don't know they're doing it. There's no if about it. But the moment man was put upon the earth, made in the likeness of his creator, with a moral responsibility, God said to him, if you do that, I'll do that. Contingency comes in. Now, if you object to that, you're practically saying, I would rather be an automaton putting penny in the slot, but then you wouldn't be a man. And if God has made a man, then he stands back and respects the work of his hands, and if he chooses evil, that's his responsibility. Well now, you know what happened. He didn't really choose evil. There is such a person mentioned in the first book of the Bible, and mentioned in the last book of the Bible, and he's is there all the way through a fallen spiritual power that tempted man. He thought that that was the wisest thing to do, but it was the very most unwisest thing to do because a couple of innocents put on the earth having no knowledge of these things to be tempted by that superior fallen spirit were just like wax in his hand. And he overdid it like he always will to the very end. And God had prepared in his wisdom a plan of redemption, so that if man fell, here was the answer. Well, now we're going to look at one or two other of these passages which give us this challenging statement. And in this book of Ecclesiastes, you'll find them several times. Chapter 2, verse 13, 14, and 16. All 15 as well. This man's examining things and examining his own heart and he's got problems that he's trying to piece together. Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly as far as light excelleth darkness. Well, you say you don't need to be a very wise man to see that. Nobody's coming to something else. The wise man's eyes are in his head but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceived also something else that one event happeneth to them all. Then said I, in my heart, as it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, that this also is vanity. For there is no remembrance of the wise man, wise more than of the fool forever, seeing that that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. How dieth the wise man? as the fool. Well, you can see that's a problem, isn't it? Then if you look at chapter 3, 19. For that which befalleth the sons of men befalleth feasts, even one thing befalleth them. As one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they all have one breath, so that a man hath no preeminence of other beasts. This is all, this is vanity. All go unto one place, all of the dust, and all turn to dust again. 
Now then he asks a question. He hasn't got the answer fully yet in this book. Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward, and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? You see the problem? This one event. And then again, in chapter 6, verse 6. Yea, though he live a thousand years twice told, yet hath he seen no good, do not all go to one place. And then finally, chapter 9, 23, uh, chapter 9, 2 and 3, sorry. All things come alike to all. There is one event to the righteous and to the wicked, to the good and to the clean and to the unclean. To him that sacrificeth and to him that sacrificeth not. As is the good, so is the sinner. And he that sweareth, as he that feareth, and evil. And so you go on. What do you say? Well, I conceive it doesn't matter two hoots whether you're wiser or fool or good or bad. No, not with regard to this, friends. We're all on a common level. Got no priority. One event. And if you live, as he says, 10,000 years twice told. What's that in, in relation to eternity? One event. You say, what a pleasant prospect we have this evening. Oh, if we stop there, it would be. But what Ecclesiastes was groping after, God has ultimately answered. But he's answered it in his own time and in the personal work of Christ. Now, I said that here's one question, that it doesn't matter what you believe or what you don't believe, you've got to face this as a fact. It, you needn't look at the Bible, it's just common knowledge that we are a mortal race. Right. Now the division starts after that, not before. A division starts now. The first division is this. One group of us will say, well, that's the end of it, nothing afterwards. And the other group will say, there is an afterwards and God has planned it. Well, in among that group that say there is an afterwards and God has planned it, well, there's all the religions of the earth all groping and trying to tell you how that can be escaped, you see. How that can be avoided or how you can overcome it. Well, now in the scriptures, it's placed the fact and it's pointed to the remedy. And that is the reason why it's not possible to avoid the death of Christ in the story. We are not saved because Christ was an eloquent preacher. We are not saved because he uttered parables beyond anyone's uh, power of a, co a copying. We are only redeemed because he died, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. And this involves the Old Testament word ransom. Ransom. Now we won't invest the word with more than it should bear, but a ransom at least conveys the idea of an equivalence. Something that is being paid in order to settle a just claim. You see, the wages of sin is death. You've got to get rid of the question of sin righteously before you can deliver from death. So I'm going to ask you now to turn to two more parts of the Old Testament. And you haven't got to go back very far to the book of Job. That is just before the uh, Psalms. The book of Job and chapter 14. And we'll look at verse 7 onwards. 
verse 7 of chapter 14 of the book of Job. He says, There is hope of a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that the tender branch thereof will not cease. Though the root thereof wax old in the earth, and the stock thereof die in the ground, yet, though the scent of water, through the scent of water it will bud, and bring forth boughs like a plant. Job's evidently been pondering. He is. He's in an awful condition himself. He's facing this one event. And he thinks, is God looking after trees that are cut down and not looking after a man? But he says, but man dieth and wasteth away. Yea, man giveth up the ghost and where is he? And then he begins to sort things out. He says in verse 12, So man lieth down and riseth not till the heavens be no more, they shall not awake, nor be erased out of their sleep. All that thou wouldst hide me in the grave, that thou wouldst keep me secret until thy wrath be past, and that thou wouldst appoint me a set time and remember me, and now it comes out in the light. If a man die, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait, till my change come. And I think I've reminded you on another occasion that that word change is the same word that is translated sprout again. You couldn't possibly say, I will wait until I sprout again. That would be absurd. But it is just the same word is used of man coming into life again when he was apparently dead and finished. Thou shalt call and I will answer thee. Thou wilt have a desire to the work of thine hands. So here's a man, he's gone a little bit further than Ecclesiastes. He's got to the point that he'll be willing to wait until his change come. And he says, thou wilt call. But he said, what's the good of calling a man who's dead and buried for thousands of years? Would he say, so far as we're concerned, no use at all. But we are dealing with one whose very character is that he quickens the dead. And our Saviour himself, you remember, demonstrated it. He stood at the tomb where a friend had died and was buried and sealed up and the mourners had gone, it was all over. And before ever he put it into practice to prove it, he ventured to say beforehand, I am the resurrection and the life. And he saying that. And then he said, Lazarus, come forth. And the thing that you say is impossible happened. Because the record doesn't say everybody believed it. They saw the miracle and then they plotted the death of Christ. They weren't friends who said that. Yet they couldn't gainsay the fact that this man was dead and now he responded to the call. So Job was in that category. Well, if you turn the page to chapter 19, you get those words which nearly everybody has heard but may not always appreciate. It says in 19... Verse 23, all that my words were now written, all that they were printed in a book. I don't know whether you've ever met the people who blandly tell you that the Old Testament early books couldn't have been written because they didn't know how to write. I don't think anybody is such a fool to say that today, but they used to. But look at this man. He's not only having them written, he's printing them in a book and graving them with an iron pen and lead in the rock. And this is what he wants to say, and it's worth writing. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand in the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, 
whom I shall see for myself, and mine eye shall behold and not another. You may say, oh, but that's fantastic. That's only what he thought. Nevertheless, this is recorded as the hope that that man had. And he's just as as right to express it as you to deny it. Well now, if you will turn a little bit further on, you get to the emphasis upon the ransom in this connection. Chapter 33. He's still speaking about a person like Job himself, suffering affliction and feeling sure that he hadn't many days to live. Verse 21. His flesh is consumed away and it cannot be seen. His bones that were not seen stick out. Yea, his soul draweth near unto the grave and his life to the destroyers. Now, here comes the answer. If there be a messenger with him, the word messenger gives us our New Testament word gospel. Euangelion or evangel, could you hear the word angel and the word evangel? Angel simply means a messenger and ev means something that's good. A messenger. It's a God sending a message of hope and deliverance. If there be a messenger with him, an interpreter. An interpreter, because we're dealing with the things of God in the language of men. And how needful it is that they should be made plain and true. You remember when I went to Amsterdam to speak, I spoke through an interrupter, not an interpreter. Well, we couldn't help ourselves. One among a thousand. That's the estimate you'd have to have of Christ if he's to be your redeemer. Not one on a parallel with another, but one among a thousand. It's the way of expressing in the Old Testament unique. To show unto man his uprightness. Then he is gracious unto him and said, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. His flesh shall be fresher than a child's he shall return to the days of his youth. I have found a ransom. Now all this is pointing to the work of Christ. You remember, it says first of all in the Psalms, no man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. That's the thing you cannot do. Even though you give your life to your friend, you can't redeem him. No. But God the one who was offended, God against whom we sinned, he's the one that provided the ransom. It's a sickening thing to hear a man standing on a soapbox in Hyde Park taking the attitude, oh, you've heard it, haven't you? He says, you mean to tell me that a loving father demands a bleeding sacrifice? He puts a good stress on the word bleeding, sacrifice, before he'll forgive his little child. What a monstrous perversion. You've only got to say to that man on the soapbox, but friend, who gave, who gave the bleeding sacrifice? Did you? No. It was the God against whom the offended gave it. You were the one who are going to receive the benefits of it. It was because God cannot treat us like a kind uncle. He cannot possibly look on sin. He is the ruler of the universe, and so the very gospel justifies God when it justifies a sinful man. We haven't got away with it. Somebody has paid the price. You hadn't, but he has. There's the incipients of the word ransom. Now our Saviour adopted the word in the New Testament. He said, The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, 
and to give his life a ransom. Anti, A-N-T-I, his life a ransom. Anti, the word that means in the Greek language the balance. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, there is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself an anti-neutron. There's your anti-ransom again to be testified in due time. So there you see, we've got this emphasis that the ransom in the Old Testament which delivers from death is pointing to the ransom made by the Son of God. Well now, for the rest of our time, we must come to the New Testament and get a few more thoughts. It's a big subject, uh, but at the same time, it's intensely personal to us all. Now I'm going to turn first of all to Hebrews chapter 2. This is speaking of the Son of God. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. Now notice this. This one is referred to in chapter 1 of Hebrews as the one, if you just turn the page back, as the one who is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, verse 3, and upholding all things by the word of his power. That's not an ordinary man. But that's the one who in the fullness of time, because the children were partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death, now that is his death, not yours and mine, this is what he undertook for us, that through death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. All their lifetime subject to bondage. The bondage of the fear of death. Well, there's a deliverance mentioned there. Then if you look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, that's only a few pages back from Hebrews, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. That's something you can't barter about with, neither can I. This goes beyond our powers. Now then, present time, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death, and hath brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. Now you say abolished death. Well, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. He says in verse 51 of 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. I think I've mentioned before that this is the one occurrence of the word atom in the New Testament. We don't usually associate the word atom with time. But as the word A means negative, and Tom is a part of the word which gives us anatomy, anything that you cut, 
An atom is something which is uncuttable or unsplittable. And of course they split the unsplittable now. But this is an unsplittable piece of time. It's so quick that it's instantaneous. In a moment, we should all be changed. In a moment. Are you glad that you're going to be changed? I am, friend. Fancy being like I am and like you are for all eternity. We would be glad to get out of it, wouldn't we, sometime or another, but God's seen to that. We should all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. The two ways of saying it means those who are living on the earth at the time and those who have been dead and buried many years, doesn't matter. So, when this corruptible should have put on incorruption and this mortal should have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Well, what's he talking about? Well, he says, I'll tell you. The sting of death is sin. A person who is an unbeliever has never had the sting of death removed. So when he dies, he dies without hope. But a person who is a believer in Christ, for whom the ransom has been found and accepted, the sting's removed, and the word that's used of his death is sleep. In the New Testament and in the Old, sleep is the word used of the believer's death. And it's just a sound sleep. You know, Shakespeare put into the mind of Hamlet the worry that that sleep that men call death, what dreams will come then and worry us, but you needn't worry about that, this book says. No, you'll have no knowledge of time. It'll be as instantaneous in experience as this most wonderful anaesthetic they give you in the hospital now. I remember speaking to the surgeon and he told me, now you'll be quite all right. And before I could say, oh yes, I said the word yes three hours and a half up, upstairs afterwards and the whole thing done. There was a man came, a, a, a man came down, an airman, right into a village, hit the ground. The thing burst into flames and he heard a voice saying, can you sit up and take this three weeks afterwards? If that hadn't happened, he'd have heard a voice saying, this is the resurrection a thousand years after. It wouldn't matter. Just like that. Now you say, all oh, this is fantastic. Supposing we admit it, friend. I'm not going to, but supposing we did. You don't believe it, and it'll never happen. I do believe it, and it doesn't happen. Well, we're both the same. <laughs> You've got no advantage over me, for you won't be able to tell me, will you? But if it does happen, friends, if it does, have you got any sporting element in you? Here's a chance, then, friend. Here's a chance. Say, I'll take it. Because I'll tell you what it'll do. It'll give you a hope and a peace in this life that you've never had before. And if it should turn out true, life everlasting, with tears wiped away, and all the past gone, and eternity to then develop and grow as God intended a man should. So you see, we've got the best of the bargain both ways, friend. But I'm only saying the if as a matter of argument, not because I intend you to understand any unbelief in that matter. And so we have this emphasis all the way through, that we have a saviour 
who is a redeemer not only from sin but its consequences. But the scripture makes it very clear that the wages of sin is death. And perhaps the most simple verse that has been used by God hundreds of thousands of times before I'll quote again. John, the fifth chapter, verse 24. Now John is appealed to by preachers because he is the gospel of everlasting life as the gift of God based sheerly upon just accepting by the hand of faith what God is offering. There are some people who raise objections. Why should the gospel depend upon faith? Well, one of the reasons is it's a humiliating one from our point of view because it could be placed upon no other basis because you can do nothing. You can offer nothing to God. You can, cannot bribe him. You cannot pay the price. You're just standing there mute. But he says, look. He says to you and me, look. In the ordinary, everyday dealing of man to man, unless you have an element of trust in the other person, you can do nothing with him, can you? No. And if you button all that hard-headed businessman who doesn't believe in faith, and you just use the Latin word for faith instead, he's all the time talking about credit. <laughs> he doesn't believe in faith. And then the same man doesn't believe in all these promises. He wants reality. So I like to say to him, have you got any pound notes in your pocket? He says, yes. Well, I said, they're only promises. Let's have them. You don't believe in them. Then you see, all our life, we're depending upon trust. I put a valuable letter in the post. I don't know the man who's going to undo the pillar box. I don't know the man who's going to sort it. I don't know the man who's going to deliver it. And you say, we don't want to have this fantastic idea of mere belief. Well, you wouldn't live in this world at all, friends. God's only asking you to do what you do with one another. The first epistle of John says, if we believe what the testimony of a man is, how much easier should it be, not how much more difficult should it be, to believe the, the testimony of God who cannot lie? Why should he lie, the living God? Why should he have in, inspired this book and preserved it for centuries against all opposition? Men have given their lives for it, it's been burned at the stake for it, it's still here. It's the bestseller. In spite of all the opposition, there's no other book in the world that beats it. It's been translated into more tongues than any other book in the world. It speaks to an Eskimo who's never seen a sheep or a shepherd, and he can understand in his own tongue, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And here we have in John chapter 5, verse 24, these words. And when you read verily, verily in John's Gospel, it is a very solemn asseveration that this is a truth that you mustn't bypass. The original word verily is the word amen. The Old Testament word amen means this is absolute, steadfast, rock-bottom truth. And it's come right into our own language. That's its meaning. So the Lord says, amen, amen, I say unto you. That's always a preface to the Hebrew that something very important is going to be uttered. So it is. He that heareth my word well, we can never hear the actual personal voice of Christ just now. But the word that he's referring to is the word that has been given to us recording this witness from God. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me. One of the titles of Christ in John's Gospel is the sent one. 
The Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. Or God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. You must remember that this is something that God has done. He has sent. He that beheareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. Now the most innocent of us, the ones who have led the most sheltered lives, as well as those who have been out into this wretched world and know what its contact is, I think we ought to have a, a great feeling of relief to realise that there is a possibility of no condemnation. Because our own consciences condemn us so many times, but he said no. No condemnation that is passed from death unto life. But is passed from death unto life. You can start on this journey here, in this very meeting. You can pass from death unto life. I don't mean to say you're going to avoid the grave, but who worries about that? You must all be changed. One way or another. But here you've got the pledge that the Son of God and his gospel work is the guarantee that you will live because he said, because I live, ye shall live also. So now as a last passage. Did I say this was the last one? Oh well, the Apostle Paul said finally twice over in one epistle, so I'm in good company. The last passage is Romans the 8th chapter. And it begins and ends on this note. Romans the 8th chapter verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. So it depends on where you are, not merely what you are. In Christ, salvation. Outside of him, condemnation. There's the two classes in this world. Now it says in verse 2, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. So there are two laws at work in this world. The law of the spirit of life, which is in Christ, and the law of sin and death, which is in ordinary mortality. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. So condemnation has fallen, friends. It's not been avoided. But blessed be God, it hasn't fallen upon us, it fell upon him. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He poured out his soul unto death, and yet he was the beloved of the Father all the time. And then at the end of this chapter 8, we read these words. Verse 33. Oh no, I must go back to verse 31. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also Freely give us all things. You see, the Son of God's the centre of it all. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies, not the man who justifies himself. God's done it. Who is he that condemneth? Well, he doesn't say nobody. He says, it's Christ that died. As much as they don't talk to me about being condemned, Christ died for me. Yea, rather, he says, he's risen again who is even at the right hand of God, and who also maketh intercession for us. Oh, we are well covered, friends, aren't we? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then, 
after summing up a whole list of possible persecutions and troubles through which you might go in this life, he says in verse 37, nay, in all these things, not exempt from them, not dodging them, but up to your neck in them, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Now, for I am persuaded that neither is the first word, death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death. Oh, go on, Paul, how many more things? Well, he says, oh, well, I'll go out into the great universe and say, or any other creature that I cannot name and I cannot describe, any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You need to tell me that this is a trifle. No condemnation. Death, when it comes, falling into such a sound sleep, and resurrection, awaking, and how to awake? Let me quote the psalm. As for me, said that man, I shall behold thy faith in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Are you satisfied with the things that go to make up your daily life? Well, you must be a sort of a caterpillar or a slug or something, but I don't even think they would be satisfied. Fancy being satisfied with the world in which you live and all its turmoil, its disappointments, the very best things you do, turning a, a wrong and awry. No. And like the Ecclesiastes said, it's all vanity. He says, one event's happening to the wise and the fool and whatnot. But it's all cancelled now for us, you see. All cancelled. I shall be satisfied when I wake with thy likeness. The sting gone. The sin forgiven. The change comes. And then we shall know. Then we shall understand then we shall recognise as we cannot understand, no or recognise now. God doesn't answer all problems in the Bible. There are some that have worried the minds of men from the beginning. It doesn't speak about eternity in the Bible in the sense that philosophers use the word. The first word in the Bible is a word of time, in the beginning. And the last word in the Bible is then cometh the end. But that's only the end of that section. For then it says, when that takes place, God at long last will be all in all. That's the goal to which he's moving. That's where he's going to be. The only question is, will you be there, friend? When that day comes and the Son of God hands up a perfect universe, with all sin gone, every tear wiped away, the last enemy destroyed, death, will you be there? In the beginning, God created, and then presently, the fall, then comes the redemption, then comes the resurrection, then comes life everlasting. All by the grace of God, see to it that you can say with the language of the first book that's intact in this world, that's the book of Job. You say with him, I know that my Redeemer liveth and mine eyes shall see and not another may the Lord give us grace that we don't trifle with these things and if we do believe them may our faith be strengthened by facing the fact 
And then we can look that one event in the face, face and with the wonderful timidity and courage of the Apostle Paul we can say, O grave, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? Thanks be unto God that giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ.